This is Guns and Butter. If you're going to talk about the mass of the Earth and the mass of the Sun in an equation to work out the force between them, you have to know what is it about the matter that creates this force between the two objects. And this has not been done, really. Uh, if you don't understand the structure of matter that gives it mass, then you cannot say what the force is between them. Now, the electric universe proposes simply that it is the electrical force that operates throughout the universe and that controls it. It gives it its uh, balance, so to speak, you know, static nature. But all of this comes from understanding gravity in electrical terms. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Wallace Thornhill. Today's show, The Electrical Nature of the Cosmos. Wallace Thornhill is Chief Science Advisor to the Thunderbolts Project and co-author with David Talbot of Electric Universe Theory and Thunderbolts of the Gods. He graduated in physics and electronics from Melbourne University and began postgraduate studies with the Upper Atmosphere Research Group. Before entering university, he had been inspired by Immanuel Velikovsky through his controversial best-selling book, Worlds in Collision. Wall experienced firsthand the indifference and sometimes hostility toward a radical challenge to mainstream science. He realized there is no career for a heretic in academia. He spent his working career in high technology with IBM Systems Development and with the Department of Foreign Affairs in the complex development of secure communications. We caught up with Wallace Thornhill at the five-day Electric Universe 2015 conference in Phoenix, Arizona, at which he was one of the principal speakers. Wallace Thornhill, welcome. Thank you. What is it about the Electric Universe theory that makes you prefer this theory over the standard model of physics that is based on gravity? Perhaps you should describe the standard physics gravitational model and how it differs from the electric universe model. Well, as one astronomer said, uh, when you have a gravitational universe, all you have is explosions, accretion, and collisions, which is highly limiting. There's nothing in there to give you a, uh, an ordered system. In fact, the Big Bang is uh, a theory which has you either expanding until everything disappears from view or falling back into a big crunch, as they call it. And all of this is a rather dismal kind of cosmology. <laughs> the other thing is that uh, gravity uh, wasn't explained by Newton. He made no hypothesis, although he thought about it and actually suggested that electricity might be involved. Uh, also, um, Richard Feynman said, all we have are equations. We don't have a model, a physical model. And that's quite true. Einstein never explained gravity. He just gave us a hyperdimensional uh, geometric uh, description of it, which is not much use if you're trying to understand gravity. So uh, the other aspect of it is that uh, it was in the early 70s when I read an article by Ralph Jurgens in uh, a little red journal uh, published in Portland, Oregon. And uh, in that article, he asked the question uh, about the sun 
you know, is the photosphere the top of the thing we call the sun or the bottom of the something we call the sun? And that might sound a bit odd, but what he was suggesting was that the, uh, the light and the heat that comes from the sun is not due to anything going on inside the sun, but it was arriving from outside, rather like an electric light. Now, when I read that article, he did a very detailed study of all of the things that you see on the sun and above the sun, and pointed out that the gravitational model predicts none of them, not one of them. And this, to me, made great sense. And so I uh, read his model and studied it, and uh, years later, after Ralph had died, I found that there was nobody pursuing it. And so I felt that uh, if no one else would do it, I'd have a go. (laughs) And uh, that ended up with me teaming up with uh, David Talbot at a meeting in Portland, Oregon. I'd actually bumped into him 20 years earlier at a Velikovskian conference in McMaster University in uh, Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, At the time, neither of us realised that uh, we would get back together again 20 years later and pursue this uh, to the point now where we're having uh, international conferences once a year on the subject because it's important because cosmology can have no exceptions but at present our cosmology is based on mathematical theorizing with no possibility of testing many of the uh, the things that have been invented so in effect it's not really scientific Also, when you have a mindset, uh, everyone's taught the same story. There are no efforts to give you alternatives, and there are alternatives. The electric universe is the chief one. Uh, No one thinks to look at the data from another point of view. So I would say that uh, there is one other aspect, too, of the um, gravitational universe that has been shown empirically, that is by observation, that the universe is not expanding. And that was the work of Halton Arp. Halton Arp showed that highly redshifted objects, the redshift is not all due to uh, movement, recession from us, that there is a high degree of intrinsic redshift. There's something going on in these faint objects which is due to the, the state of the matter in that object. But when he wrote his first paper to point this out, it was uh, put in front of um, Chandrasekhar, and he scribbled in the corner, this exceeds my imagination. Now, that is no reason to reject a paper. In fact, I would have thought it every reason to um, publish it. But uh, his telescope time was taken off him, and he was forced uh, eventually to move to Germany, where he um, was... uh, at one of the high-energy astronomical uh, research uh, institutions. And it's funny because looking at x-rays and so on only confirmed his earlier work. His work was actually championed by uh, Sir Fred Hoyle and uh, Geoffrey and Margaret Burbage, who were all key figures in astronomy uh, up until their deaths. But nobody wanted to know. Unfortunately, I think the Big Bang has become a self-perpetuating myth. Uh, and That's all it can be because it doesn't conform to uh, the scientific method. It is merely an exercise in mathematics now. Uh, Wallace, you mentioned the red shift. Perhaps you might take a minute to 
try and simplify that. I know it's not simple, but maybe you, you, since you've brought it up, you might want to say a a few words about that. That's a good point. Uh, The redshift, if I can use an analogy with sound, um, if you have a train approaching you with a whistle sounding, as it shoots past you, the pitch of that sound drops. Now, with the visible spectrum, if something's approaching you rapidly and you look at the light from it, the uh, frequency drops as it moves past you and recedes into the distance. And in light, that means that the uh, signal changes from the blue end of the spectrum towards the red. And so when uh, Hubble first uh, put forward his uh, redshift and velocity of recession um, paper, it was, it was thought that this proved that these faint red objects were racing away from us at very high speeds. And uh, the faintness of the object was related, he thought, to the distance away. It was an assumption. And if you did that, then the fainter the object and the redder it was, it was believed that you were looking at, you know, at the edges of the visible universe. But even Hubble himself wasn't convinced that that was the answer. In fact, he said it was the most unlikely answer. And uh, even up to his death, he, he didn't subscribe to the um, expansion theory, which sort of um, kills the myth a bit, but... Um, uh, what Halton Arp did was he showed that these highly redshifted objects were actually associated physically by bridges of matter uh, to low redshift objects. In other words, it was as if these high redshift objects were, were born from the low redshift galaxies. And uh, there was a classic example recently where one of these high redshift quasars was found in front of a low redshift galaxy. <laughs> there's, there's no, you know, that just doesn't work according to the Big Bang theory. So it's uh, generally ignored, or there's some specious argument about being able to see through the the galaxy to see this thing. Helton Harp actually produced enough evidence, in my view, uh, to uh, prove his uh, model. So then we have the difficulty of uh, a galaxy which, as Helton Arp said, is effectively static. Now, if gravity operates the way everyone thinks it does, then everything should be collapsing towards us with blue shift, but it wasn't. So we have a static universe then, so we do not understand gravity. That's, that's the uh, bottom line. And therefore you cannot base a cosmology uh, with any confidence at all on something you don't understand. Well, if current astrophysics is based on a theory of gravity or a belief about gravity, and also you've mentioned the Big Bang and the redshift, etc., mm. how would you characterize electric universe theory in contradistinction to uh, mainstream astrophysics, for instance? Well, mainstream astrophysics uh, actually deals with concepts that they have never explained, like mass and energy. Now, this is just a basic physics problem, and this is where you get to the other end of the spectrum, and particle physics, you know, at the smaller scale, and particle physics uh, has this crazy idea that um, the proton, the electron, the neutron, the bits that make up an atom have no mass, and that something external to the atom or to these particles gives them mass. But uh, that suggests, according to E equals mc squared, that these particles have no energy. But we know 
in an atom bomb, if you start messing around with them, that there's a heck of a lot of energy tied up in them. So I think that was a completely futile exercise, uh, theoretical exercise, to suggest that the mass of these particles comes from outside. Now, the important thing about that is that the Newton's law of gravity, which NASA uses to navigate around the solar system, only includes the masses of the two objects and the distance between them. So if we don't understand mass, then we're really behind the eight ball because uh, we have no basis for understanding gravity. We don't understand why there is a force between two separated masses. So all of this means that uh, the electric universe has to deal with both ends of the spectrum. If you're going to talk about the mass of the Earth and the mass of the Sun in an equation to work out the force between them, you have to know what is it about the matter that creates this force between the two objects. And this has not been done, really. Uh, If you don't understand the structure of matter that gives it mass, then you cannot say what the force is between them. Now, the electric universe proposes simply that uh, it is the electrical force that operates throughout the universe and that controls it. It gives it its uh, balance, so to speak, you know, static nature. But all of this comes from understanding gravity in electrical terms and also treating the Earth as a collection of atoms, not a central point mass, which is a, a physical absurdity. And yet Newton's law uses a physical point mass. You know, All the masses of the Earth is at a single point and the mass of the Sun is at a single point and you do your calculation and forget about the actual structure of those bodies. The electric universe takes all of this into consideration and has shown how the sun and all stars can be explained electrically. Who was uh, Christian Birkeland, and what was his important contribution to electric universe theory? Well, when you come up with a new model for the universe, you look back in history to see uh, who were the real pioneers because uh, there's a completely different set of giants on whose uh, shoulders you should stand <laughs> because they're facing the right direction. Um, and Christian Birkeland is certainly one of those because he was fascinated by the northern lights, the aurora borealis, And he, with great hardship, set up observatories, magnetic observatories and so on, up uh, in the Arctic Circle. And he was able to show, to his satisfaction, that the aurora was an electrical phenomenon, using um, magnets and so on to determine changes in the magnetic field up in that region. And also, uh, there are reports that you actually get hissing noises, like electrical (laughs) noises uh, if the um, uh, discharge is not all that high above you. I'm speaking with Chief Science Advisor to the Thunderbolts Project, Wallace Thornhill. Today's show, The Electrical Nature of the Cosmos. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. His work was ignored, though, because uh, there was uh, an Englishman, uh, Sidney Chapman, who at the time uh, held sway and had great uh, influence in the field, and he showed that the aurora could be explained by buffeting of the Earth's magnetosphere. In other words, uh, and Birkeland wouldn't have known about that at the time. And by the mechanical buffeting, it acted like a dynamo, and so it drove currents back into the poles along the magnetic field lines. But that was shown uh, early in the space age to be... uh, not the whole story, that uh, there was uh, 
actually magnetic fields and um, currents. And it has been admitted only recently that there are magnetic flux tubes, which is another word for a Birkeland current connecting the Earth with the Sun. So Birkeland was vindicated and some plasma physicists were able to reinstate his name or reinstate his name with these currents as Birkeland currents and, and that is now used. Um, he was important because he had incredible foresight. He was able to show that the sunspot cycle could be recreated in the laboratory. He built what was called a Torella or Little Earth in a large glass chamber and he uh, evacuated the chamber, it was a vacuum chamber, and there was a magnetised sphere in the centre of it, and by cranking up the voltage he caused the discharge to this little earth. And he was able to uh, mimic all kinds of things, the auroras on the earth, uh, sunspots, Saturn's rings, electrically. Now, (laughs) if science operated the way it's supposed to, that should have been headline news and it should have been investigated uh, fully, but... His work was ignored, and he died without uh, getting any recognition. Following him, of course, there are other scientists like Hans Alfvén, who was a bit of a thorn in the side for astrophysicists because he kept asking awkward questions. But his name is attached to uh, various features in plasmas, and he won the Nobel Prize uh, for plasma physics. But at that the uh, investiture of the uh, Nobel Prize, he made an unusual speech where he said that some of his early work was incorrect and yet it was still accepted and wasn't recognised as being incorrect by uh, other scientists. And would you believe he said that uh, there is an astrophysical crisis that must come. Uh, Everyone ignored him, of course, but that was an unusual thing to actually, in a Nobel Prize uh, acceptance speech, to admit that you got something wrong and to sound a warning but then to have the science community ignore it is uh, really unforgivable (laughs) now i know we're on the radio and so we can't see pictures yeah but uh, could you describe you've mentioned a birkeland current Mm -hmm. and this is a, a big element of electric universe theory yes uh could you describe for listeners what a birkeland current is Yes, it it has to be recognised that uh, plasma in space is uh, an extremely good conductor, better than copper. But because the particles are diffuse, number per cubic metre isn't all that great, they can't carry a great current. However, when they do carry it, uh, they carry it very well and they tend to generate, I mean, the motion of charged particles in plasma generates a self-magnetic field and the self-magnetic field is wrapped around it. And that magnetic field tends to squeeze it to form a filament. If you get uh, two of these filaments close to one another, they will begin to draw towards each other with a long-range electromagnetic force. And when they come close, because of the difference in mass between the electron and the proton, they tend to twist around one another. So it's like a twisted pair of uh, telephone wire or something like that. You know, engineers use it because it's the least radiation method of transferring uh, power or signals down two wires. So it's rather interesting that nature does the same thing. It loses least energy by having these uh, filaments twist together. And, of course, when uh, astronomers began to look into space using radio telescopes, 
they can detect the signals from these Birkeland currents, twisted pairs. And so there was one uh, radio astronomer in particular who was the only astronomer I know that attended the IEEE uh, plasma sciences uh, conferences, and he worked with a pioneer in plasma cosmology called Tony Pratt, and they more or less proved that these Birkeland currents are out in space near the solar system, and they're um, misconstrued as being uh, hydrogen clouds and so on. It's like when, if you have a twisted filament moving away from you, it just looks like a cloud, but they were able to identify the signature that they expected from the plasma laboratory, uh, which proved that they were uh, Birkeland currents. They're very important because they can carry uh, electric currents over vast distances and keep this coherent, like a lightning strike. You know, we have a, a thin uh, channel of the lightning and it doesn't change in uh, width over miles, you know, from, it can come over several miles from the clouds to ground. And it keeps the same width over that whole length. And this is exactly what's being found now in molecular clouds where they find these stringy filaments uh, and stars strung along them like beads on a necklace. (laughs) Now, are there Birkeland currents stretching from between the sun and the earth? Yes, yes. And that's what uh, feeds uh, the energetic activity in the auroras. Um, The magneto tail is involved because uh, the Earth is part of a circuit, part of the sun circuit. When I say a circuit, uh, an electrical circuit, um, it was Hans Alfvén, the Nobel Prize winner, who drew the sun circuit. Uh, And he said it had to be there. You can't have the magnetic fields without an electric current. And this is something that tends to be ignored by astronomers. Once space went from being a perfect vacuum and a perfect insulator to being recognised as being a plasma which can conduct electricity, uh, the next um, uh, story to get around this problem was that uh, the uh, plasma was a superconductor. It it trapped the magnetic field and carried it with it. So as one uh, leading... uh, astronomer in Australia said to me in a, or said to an assembled group of other scientists uh, when we don't understand something we blame it on magnetism <laughs> so uh, there's an escape hatch everywhere along the line in uh, standard uh, cosmology or astrophysics uh, because the magnetic fields themselves are mysterious they are really unexplained Uh, Even the sun's magnetic field is not explained, and because it's hidden out of sight inside the sun, according to the standard theory, there's no way of checking. (laughs) The theories theories can't match what we observe, but they say it must be generated inside the sun. Now, uh, you have mentioned plasma, and of course, Birkeland currents traveling through plasma. Hmm. Is plasma what fills space, and what is plasma? Plasma is a separated charge. An atom is made up of equal amounts of positive and negative charge with all of the positive charge residing in the nucleus and then the uh, atom has electrons flying around but there's an equal number of electrons to protons, so a neutral atom. Out in space, the atoms, uh, some percentage of them, are split up so that you have positive nuclei and you have free electrons. Now, all you need to carry a current is a charged particle. So those positive particles and the negative particles 
combined act to be a conductor, which is because they're free to move, more free than in a copper wire, they actually uh, carry electric current much better. But usually uh, the currents are very diffuse, so uh, what might be carried in a one thin copper wire might require several cubic uh, metres or several metre diameter uh, plasma to carry it. And because of that, and because the particles are few and far between, it takes a considerable amount of current in space to make them actually glow. But where you have dust and other material which uh, increases the number of atoms in a given volume, it begins to glow. And this is what we see in those molecular clouds that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and so the infrared telescopes and the visual telescopes pick up these filaments everywhere. And they're quite enigmatic. The standard explanation, as I said, gravitational astronomy only has explosions and collisions and you know accretion. The explanation for these filaments in these molecular clouds is supernova explosions, which blow everything <laughs> so that it, it forms these patterns which look like strings from edge on. However, the, the problem they face is that uh, these filaments maintain the same width over vast distances, light years, you know, in a molecular cloud. Only Birkeland currents will do that. Only electricity will do it. Now, according to electric universe theory, are stars born from uh, uh, Birkeland currents? Yes. These uh, uh, bright beads on a string is where the stars are formed because the magnetic fields around those electric currents uh, become unstable and pinch off and it's a bit like bead lightning where you get bright beads along the lightning channel it's a similar kind of thing it's uh, it's what happens to plasma when it can't carry the current anymore it tends to um, pinch off and so you get these bright beads at various points down the chain and this is what we observe it was unexpected um, and uh, there is no good answer from gravitational astronomy, but it was expected by the plasma scientists before the event. So if a star is born from what is described here at the, uh, I should say that we are right here at the uh, Electric Universe 2015 conference here in Phoenix, and we're doing this interview in person, (laughs) it's really a great honor to meet you, Wallace Thornhill. Um, so many speakers have talked about the Z pinch in the middle of a Birkeland current, yes. and that is where a star is formed. Mm. Uh, is the star ejected from the Birkeland current, or does it stay there on the string that you've mentioned, the string of pearls? It stays there. Uh, the discharge fades. If you can imagine um, cloud-to-cloud lightning, when the lightning bolt is at its maximum, it's quite bright and it may form these bright beads along the, its length if it's a particularly powerful one. Afterwards, it fades. Now, in cloud-to-cloud lightning, of course, everything is moving fairly rapidly and so it all dissipates uh, quickly. But in space, these Birkeland currents uh, extend... They're everywhere. There's a huge network of them. And... Once the, um, the bright phase is passed, the Birkeland current's still there. But one of the things that the Birkeland currents do is that they're rotating, so this is why stars rotate. And it's not only stars formed in these things, it's also planets and brown dwarfs, all sorts. Uh, when that fades, 
the stars tend to move then under the influence of gravity. So nearby objects will tend to be uh, form planetary systems or multiple star systems. And this is what we see. There's far more multiple star systems than can be accounted for by accretion. And also, uh, I think there's about 2,000 exoplanetary systems, as they call them, where people are looking to try and understand our solar system, and they've eventually come up with the um, answer that we're weird because all of the uh, exoplanetary systems uh, can't be explained by the standard model of the solar system. They have planets that go over the poles of their star and some that go backwards. Uh, They have giant planets uh, orbiting in a day or so around their uh, central star. Crazy things, you know, according to uh, standard theory of the formation of our solar system, you can't have big, giant planets orbiting close to the sun because they should have all been the material blown away towards the outer reaches of the solar system before it could condense. So these anomalies have completely wrecked uh, the theory of the formation of our planetary system. But the, uh, the electric universe says every object has its own story, has its own history. And that's why we have a, such a fruit salad of objects in our planetary system. There is no gradation of properties from one planet to the next. They're all weird <laughs> in their own way. And one astronomer at a meeting, uh, he was a planetary astronomer, and he admitted we need a separate theory for each planet. It wasn't a simple uh, primordial episode, a single event. It's been a story of um, a blended family. I'm speaking with Chief Science Advisor to the Thunderbolts Project, Wallace Thornhill. Today's show, The Electrical Nature of the Cosmos. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I have heard it uh, said here at the Electric Universe Conference that uh, electric universe theory, that the manifestation, I guess you might say, is very, very complex, mm. but that the principles are quite simple. Yes, that's right. This goes back to the way science was done before the 20th century, where the aim was for simplicity. And I think it's unfortunate that uh, in modern times, um, the uh, awards, the big awards, the Nobel Award and so on, Uh, handed out more for the introduction of more complexity, more particles, more forces. That's the first thing that uh, somebody says when they find a discrepancy. They say, oh, I have to invent a new particle or a new force. That's entirely the wrong way to go. It's not the classical physics uh, method of operation. So the, the electric universe refers very heavily to people in the past who have had an intuitive sense that electricity was important in understanding gravity. And it's only in recent months, after decades and decades of uh, investigating ways and means of explaining what's observed, that I've come up with a very simple theory of gravity. And I think, as I said at this meeting, no single equation could ever describe the effects of gravity uh, because uh, there are so many anomalies, you know, people uh, who first uh, tried to measure the change in uh, the gravitational constant, as it's called, by going down deep shafts, found anomalies. And so they said, oh, there must be a fifth force. You you see the tendency. Those who went up uh, tall towers and measured the the change in uh, gravity as they went up the tower found anomalies and said, oh, 
there must be a sixth force. <laughs> this is not the way to get to the bottom of things. Um, and also we know that spacecraft uh, swing past the Earth uh, often show anomalous accelerations. Comets show non-gravitational accelerations. So there's all these things that uh, are outstanding. They haven't been brought into a simple model. The electric universe has finally been able to do that. What's more, it has been able to uh, explain the static universe of Halton Arp. Now, his observational work cannot be dismissed. It's been attempted, but it's been attempted by using statistics, and we all know what you can do with statistics. <laughs> they didn't address Halton Arp's original thesis and the way he um, came to his conclusions. Now, if he could convince Sir Fred Hoyle and the Burbages and other key individuals who also checked the work and came up with the same conclusion, then, uh, you know, what more do you need? What would the understanding be electrically of gravity as opposed to the conventional uh, so-called understanding of it or claims? Yeah. Well, there is no understanding. Uh, you can't apply Einstein's uh, theory of general relativity to tell you why a pound of sausages weighs a pound on the scales. You know, it's not due to warp space. <laughs> In fact, the very concept of four dimensions uh, highlights the problem that we have, that the mathematicians have taken over physics and the natural philosophers, who are the, the ones in the past, who pointed to electricity repeatedly. You know, Faraday did it, even Newton, and um, uh, other key figures uh, in science in the last the century before the, you know, the 19th century. They had an intuition that this was the case. And when you look at the, uh, uh, the formula for the electric force, it's exactly the same as the gravitational force, but with the masses replaced by charges. The clue uh, was given to me by a visit to Emmanuel Velikovsky at his home only six months before he died in Princeton. I was working for the Australian government in Washington at the time and called him up and said we had met at that conference in 1974 that I mentioned earlier. And uh, he uh, kindly invited me, and I had my family with me too, so we drove up <laughs> and uh, spent the afternoon with him. My question for him was about gravity, because his work challenged the idea that the planets have always been in their present orbits, and he said that within man's memory, Venus was a giant comet, before achieving its stable orbit. And, of course, the astronomers said this was complete anathema and that uh, it disobeyed Newton's law. Now, you have to remember that all these laws are made by humans, <laughs> so subject to change. But my question to him was, you know, what is it we don't understand about gravity? Because that was the single biggest um, problem that he had to face. And he gave me a copy of a small book in which he talked in that book about the um, ability of neutral matter to be distorted to form tiny electric dipoles. And it answered a number of questions about things just on Earth, uh, like why do uh, billions of tonnes of water stay up in clouds in the sky, you know, um, and then fall as rain. So it seemed to be an electrical uh, answer to that one. It was only two years later, in 1981, there was a tiny advertisement in the Scientific American, I think it was December, 
issue. Um, and it said, Journal of Classical Physics. And that caught my eye immediately because I'd recognised that we had to go back to get to the future, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and uh, the article was by one Ralph Sansbury, uh, and it was published in New York. And so I contacted him. And eventually we became friends. I, I visited him and um, on a couple of occasions, and uh, we met up in London the first time. But his book pointed out that all subatomic particles must have a substructure. And his reason for that was that you could explain the magnetic force and the gravitational force merely by the distortion of subatomic particles. And that, to me, was... I just felt intuitively that was the right way to go because here you were trying to... Uh, have a, a real physical model of matter which could provide you all of the forces with one. This was real simplification. <laughs> but it has taken me years and I've had to uh, think carefully about uh, Ralph's uh, ideas and uh, some I accepted and others I, I rejected on various grounds and then I had to come up with my own answers. I should say that I gave a workshop uh, over here uh, last November and I only gave part of the story then. There were still outstanding puzzles. In the months between then and now, I, I finally managed to put it together. And it's, it's, uh, it's a strange feeling to see something for the first time that <laughs> with the uh, science editor in my hometown in Australia uh, which is the capital of Australia, by the way, uh, dubbed me the boundary rider of science because I was out there and I could see the clouds of bulldust being raised by the herd <laughs> where there was a lot of heat being generated and not much light. And I would look for the people who were being um, marginalised because often people who challenge the current thinking are marginalised. Their publications are either suppressed or prevented. The peer review system is a very effective censorship method. And uh, I checked to see whether there's anything in the work that they're doing that could fill in bits of this big picture. Because the electric universe is such a big picture now that it includes everything from particle physics uh, through to the interactions uh, in biology uh, to the interactions between planets. And it's amazing how there's a common thread through all of this, and that's the electric force. Uh, up to the organisation of spiral galaxies, why they are like they are, why they rotate the way they do, and it all hangs together. Um, so it was getting that last bit of the puzzle, because gravity, I mean, is the thing we have to deal with every day, and to think that it's taken us all this time to come up with a simple model to explain it, and that I might have been out there <laughs> with a mind that was prepared to uh, look in this direction, and that's the big problem, is to be looking in the right direction. Uh, it was quite a, a, an amazing feeling. Uh, your presentation here at the Electric Universe was on gravity. Yes. And since we're on that subject, I was actually considering doing a whole show on gravity. I mean, it would take that. <laughs> yes. And this is obviously what you're presently working on. Mm. Well, how would you sum up the, the work you've done on gravity? I guess the important thing is its electrical component, right? Yes. Yes, it's, um, it's fascinating. In fact, I'm still trying to formulate the best way to explain it simply. But it's a case of... Uh, Electric or electromagnetic forces at one scale being able to lock uh, 
the tiny electric dipoles in matter into a pattern uh, which gives you the effect of gravity at one scale and then at a bigger scale you need a, a strong force uh, or a stronger force to tie the matter together so that the dipoles act in a certain way and the result is that um, gravity is not just a pulling force, it's also a pushing force. It is, it is no different to a magnet. If you have a magnet uh, with a steel ball, of course it'll attach itself to either pole. Well, we're like the little steel balls on the surface of the Earth, and the Earth induces in us an attraction, and so we're stuck, stuck to the Earth. It's a very weak force, of course, much weaker than uh, magnetism. The reason for that is that it's a subatomic distortion. It's not an atomic distortion. In uh, the matter that makes up the Earth and makes up us, it's the molecular force, which is stronger, of course, much stronger than the gravitational force. So the molecular force is what locks these little dipoles in position to uh, give you the effect of gravity. When you go up to the um, scale of the solar system, it's interesting. Each planet is actually a repulsive magnet. And so each planet and the stars, and the sun in particular, uh, has a repulsive field. And so each planet has its own little sphere of influence. And when it bumps up against another object's sphere of influence, the boundary is misshapen somewhat, like the moon would misshape our sphere of influence. When you uh, travel to the moon, you come to a certain point where the uh, influence of the moon is more powerful than the influence of the earth, and you sort of switch over to be influenced by the moon. As I say, um, it's going to take me a while to try and figure out the best way to explain this in simple terms, and that's the challenge ahead for me because people have now asked me to write <laughs> a chapter or a book or something or other to try and explain this. But it's rather, it, it's rather nice because you begin to realise that the universe operates with a, an exquisite balance of forces. Helton Arp was right. He was the only astronomer I know, apart from Newton, who actually um, considered the possibility that gravity was a pushing down force instead of a, something tugging on us, not a pulling force. And he did that simply because he discovered that the, the universe is not expanding. I'm speaking with Chief Science Advisor to the Thunderbolts Project, Wallace Thornhill. Today's show, The Electrical Nature of the Cosmos. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, then, are you saying that gravity is not both a repulsive and a pulling force? It's, uh, it's both, isn't it, or is it only repulsive force? No, it, it can be either. It depends on the configuration, you see. If you imagine uh, every atom in the Earth has a very heavy nucleus, which can be uh, nearly 4,000 times heavier than the electrons around it, being trapped in uh, matter, you know, in rocks and uh, the ocean and so on, they can't fall. So what happens? They're fixed there. This heavy nucleus is drawn slightly away from the centre of the atom towards the centre of the Earth so that each atom is distorted with the nucleus being closer to the centre of the Earth. That end is positive in that atom and the top end is negative. It's not a separation of charge, so it's all neutral matter, but there's this tiny little distortion. That electric field within the atom causes all of the particles in the atom to 
distort slightly. And it's that tiny distortion of the electrons, protons and neutrons that gives you the force of gravity. Now, what I'm saying has an implication, and that is that you've got the other pole of the magnet, if you like, facing inwards, and all of them are facing one another. So there's a repulsive force. And this means that our ideas of what's inside the Earth, inside the Sun and all stars is mistaken. Um, there is a repulsive force which tends to offset the overburden, all of the weight above it. And uh, this, uh, of course, fits with the electric universe model of stars. You don't need a lot of pressure and high temperatures in the centre of a star. There are many other aspects of the electrical model which make a great deal of sense and which make actually explain all of the observed features that we see on the sun to the extent that we're now uh, performing an experiment to try and test out all of these uh, features of the sun in the laboratory. This is one experiment we can do that the gravitational people can't do. Now, are you referring to the SAFFIRE project? Yes. Oh, maybe you could uh, talk a little bit about that. Yes, once you have an electrical model of the sun, uh, because the energies involved are electrical and quite strong, you can scale down and do an experiment in the laboratory to test those ideas. And um, the original impetus for this model was given by Ralph Jurgens, who published uh, curves of a discharge um, which showed where we could expect to see certain features. And so the first, the first uh, task of this experiment will be to see if we can reproduce that, you know, the voltage curves and so on through the plasma, through the solar system. All of the evidence from space and from space probes supports the electric model, but we need to do the uh, hard empirical work to uh, prove it. One thing that we need to talk about, a very big subject, is the sun, of course. We've mentioned mm. that, and a few minutes ago you mentioned the interior of the planets uh, not being what a lot of people assume they are. How would you describe the sun, the sun in our solar system, in electric terms? Well, as I said before, stars and planets are born along these cosmic lightning bolts, and uh, the process of formation of these bodies is one of uh, drawing together matter over a vast volume. Now, the electromagnetic forces from those Birkeland currents uh, through the molecular clouds has a far greater range than uh, gravity does, and it's far more powerful. So it's the best way to bring uh, widely dispersed matter that is very hard to draw together by gravity. This does it easily. So... In a molecular cloud, it draws all of the elements, the atoms and so on, over a vast distance in along this uh, central filament. And also what happens is that it separates the elements according to their uh, ability to be ionised, that is to strip electrons from them. And this has been shown in the laboratory. All of the heavy elements settle along the axis. Then the lighter elements and then finally the oxygen, nitrogen, and then helium and hydrogen on the outside. And this is diametrically opposed to any model of the sun or stars, which assumes that they've all got a hydrogen core to uh, fuel the nuclear fusion. <laughs> but that model was never a very uh, sensible one in the first place, because uh, why would you have the lightest element 
in the periodic table, sitting in the centre of a gravitating object, you'd have all the heavy elements there. Well, the electrical model puts them there in the first place anyway. What's more, the core is cool. So uh, the centre of the sun would be like a giant planet with a very extensive atmosphere of hydrogen and helium, and right at the very top of that is an electrical discharge phenomenon that we call the sun. And where a sunspot occurs, where those that bright discharge is uh, pulled apart by electromagnetic forces, when you look down through there, it's cooler underneath. These are the kinds of things, of course, we'll be testing with this experiment. Oh, that's very amazing, and uh, not what people think, not typically. Not at all, no, no. Now, I've also heard it mentioned here at the conference, I believe from, from you and from others, that the sun derives its energy from outside of the sun. There's no explosions going on in the core. No, no. In fact, uh, the sun defies any known physical model of transfer of heat from the centre to the outside. There's no physical model we know of with a radiation zone in it, for instance. These have been invented merely to support the original assumption by Eddington, who put the standard model of stars up, he had the supreme arrogance to say it shouldn't be too difficult to understand something as simple as a star. And what did he do? He took simple gas laws applicable on Earth and applied them to the sun. And, uh, (laughs) I mean, that was a really uh, arrogant assumption, particularly because all of the things we observe on the surface of the sun and above the sun don't conform. So uh, with traditional science, we still haven't explained the high temperature of the corona the acceleration of the solar wind, uh, the, uh, the solar granulation is not explained by convection, that that's what it's supposed to be. Um, it's been found that the convection is just insufficient to transfer the energy that we see. And there's all sorts of details, like sunspots have a central dark umbra and then around it a, a penumbra made of f- twisted Birkeland filaments. In other words, <laughs> the sun is a giant ball of lightning, if you like. But I wouldn't say that the sun is powered totally electrically. The reason for that is that um, we know that uh, the neutrino telescopes, as they call them, give us a fuzzy image of the sun from the neutrinos that are supposed to be produced by nuclear reactions. Now, it was known for decades that there were too few neutrinos coming from the sun to satisfy the standard model, and it was a, a real puzzle until uh, it was found that neutrinos could come in different so-called flavours. This is one of the misuse of language that <laughs> helps no one. What it meant was that neutrinos have mass and they have different resonant states which can have slightly different masses. What happened was when they discovered these, they said, oh, they must transmogrify on the way you know, somehow as they're passing out of the sun and turn into the ones we want. And if you add them all together, it sort of almost works. The electric universe says, no, there are nuclear reactions going on in the photosphere and that all kinds of elements are being uh, produced there, uh, some by neutron capture, the heavy elements, and others just by uh, fusion reactions, and that uh, a considerable amount of the sun's energy is still... Uh, nuclear energy but it requires electrical power to catalyse the process and all of this uh, makes sense you see all the heavy elements in the sun's um, 
spectrum. Uh, it explains the the electric fields involved in uh, powering the sun, ex- uh, explain the solar wind acceleration, the high temperature of the corona, all very simply. When the energy is coming in from outside, the first place to get hot is where it hits, and that's you know, outside the sun. It's that simple. And the easiest way to accelerate a charged wind or charged particles is with an electric field. So the sun does have an electric field. But it's a very weak, it's probably measured in millivolts per kilometre, but when you consider the size of the solar system, that amounts to hundreds of volts between us and the sun and so on. It's enough to drive a, a wind like we see. Now, you said that there are nuclear reactions going on in the photosphere of the sun. Where is that? That's the bright, right in front of our faces. It's I happening see. right there where we uh, look at the sun. I see. If we game enough to look at the sun. Um, and there's evidence for this as well in the fact that the neutrino count has been found to be modulated by the number of sunspots. The neutrino count goes down as the sunspot number goes up. In other words, where there's a sunspot, there's no photosphere, so it's not producing neutrinos. So the more sunspots, dark spots you have, the less neutrinos are coming, and that's exactly what's observed. Uh, you should say a word or two about a neutrino. Now, what are you referring to there? Neutrino is uh, one of the uh, standard particles. Uh, it was... Um, invented, so to speak, initially because uh, nuclear reactions were shown to have a a missing component somewhere and so the neutrino was invented, but it is necessary. The reason I say that is that um, if you conform to the principles of physics, you cannot create matter nor annihilate it. We don't know what matter is when it comes to it. We really don't know. So if you adopt that principle, in other words, there's no miracles involved in science, uh, then When a particle and its so-called antiparticle are produced, and we know this happens, uh, there must be something there first to form those two particles. It can't come from nothing. There's no such thing as uh, pure energy. Energy has to be associated with matter. So when a sufficiently powerful electromagnetic uh, signal... uh, strikes a neutrino and the neutrino it usually has to be near an atom of some description a heavy atom and there seems to be a resonance set up which splits the neutrino into a particle and it's charged opposite there's no such thing as an antiparticle because if those two particles say an electron and a positron come back together again there's a flash of energy but there's a neutrino resulting in other words the energy is released again so there's no uh you know, <laughs> magical creation or annihilation of matter. It's really surprising, you know, that um, the best-known equation in physics and to the general public is E equals mc squared, and yet physics still cannot define what they mean by energy or mass to in any sensible physical terms. If you ask what energy is, they'll give you examples and, and talk about conservation of energy when it goes from one sort to another. But at heart, until you can define in terms of the atom and subatomic particles what you mean by energy and what you mean by mass, uh, you're not doing physics. And those equations on the board that we see, all that shorthand, is merely a description of what's been seen, but the symbols being used and the operators, unless the, the genius standing in front of the board can tell you what they mean, 
in real terms that you can understand, they don't understand what they're talking about either. Wallace Thornhill, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. The rest of the interview with Wallace Thornhill is posted at gunsandbutter.org. I've been speaking with Wallace Thornhill. Today's show has been The Electrical Nature of the Cosmos. Wallace Thornhill is Chief Science Advisor to the Thunderbolts Project and co-author with David Talbot of Electric Universe Theory and Thunderbolts of the Gods. He graduated in physics and electronics from Melbourne University and began postgraduate studies with the Upper Atmosphere Research Group. He spent his working career in high technology with IBM Systems Development and with the Department of Foreign Affairs in the complex development of secure communications. His spare time has been devoted to the continuing study of astronomy and physics and regularly attending seminars at the Australian National University Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics and the Research School of Earth Sciences. For more information on electrical universe theory, visit holoscience.com. That's H-O-L-O-S-C-I-E-N-C-E dot C-O-M. Also visit thunderbolts.info. That's thunderbolts.info. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaro Mako, and Tony Rango. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit gunsandbutter.org to sign up for our email list and receive our newsletter. Guns and Butter Online now includes a new website, an active Twitter feed, show archives, and a blog. Follow us at G&B Radio. Peace.